Yeah, you're one of our regular students for Self-Improvement Wednesday. Each week you get to learn something new. Your lesson this week, Clone Wars, how plants reproduce asexually. Your teacher is Dr Brett Summerall, who's Chief Botanist at the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney. Good afternoon. Afternoon, Richard. Now, we know what most flowering plants do. I guess they reproduce via the production of seeds and by pollination, don't they? Yeah, that's right. So pollen is dispersed from plant to plant by wind or by pollinators. We're really concerned about the plight of bees and all sorts of other pollinators at the moment. So that's how many plants do, but there are some plant species that have basically given up on this process or it happens so rarely that it's almost um, not really significant. And that results in populations that are groups of individual clones growing together. Um, So that's, you know, it's a really unique and interesting thing that happens in a number of plant communities. I guess every gardener would know this is possible. It's it's the way you can take a, a cutting of, say, say, a rose or something like that from a friend's garden and pl- plonk it in the dirt and it will grow. Yeah, it's a really critical part of horticulture and agriculture. Um, we have this process where we take a take a cutting, you know, sort of like taking a, a cutting off someone's hand or foot and growing a new human. But we we do it regularly in in horticulture. We take a cutting, put it in some potting mix, maybe with a hormone. And it's really important if we want to make sure we, you know we're getting the right rows or we're growing up um, the right types of fruit trees. You know, whether it's Granny Smiths or whatever, or, or even with our native plants with grevilleas and things, so that what we know we're buying at the shop is an exact replica of what's in the what's on the label. And of course, sometimes this can bring problems. The the best example is probably bananas. Yeah, so, so pretty much all of the bananas sold across the world are a clone, um, of the, cult, the cultivar called Cavendish. Um, essentially no genetic variable, which is great for knowing what the fruit will look like, how it'll be transported around the, the, the planet and what it'll taste like. But when we've got a newer disease evolved, as we have with the Panama disease happening up in, in North Queensland, there is, of course, no resistance to the pathogen. Mm-hmm. Now, with both the, the roses and the bananas, we're talking about sort of human intervention producing these. It happens in nature too, though, doesn't it? Yeah, so in, in nature it happens happens occasionally and when it does happen it's really quite spectacular and as a result you can get these big clonal colonies. Uh, and in with most woody plants and trees and the like shrubs, clonal colonies arise by the roots moving out uh, from the original point of where the individual started, sending up shoots, um, suckers. Anybody who's mowed over a, a rubinia in their garden will have, will have seen the number of shoots that can pop up and grow everywhere. And it happens in all sorts of different ways. These new shoots come up or you can get branches that bend down and, and um, start to form roots in the ground or you can get aerial roots when things like blackberries and, and figs. So all sorts of different ways in which clonal colonies can form. Even the humble strawberry works like that. Yeah, so anybody who's grown a strawberry will have seen these lovely runners that come out and um, before you know it, you've got a new plant that's growing um, next to the the plant that you purchased and, mm-hmm. and, of course, you get more fruit that way. Okay, but does that mean those strawberries are individual plants or are they all kind of one plant? Well, genetically they're identical. So uh, they're individual plants in that they're, they potentially are separated, but they're, they're effectively all the one, the one individual. And, and that's a really interesting uh, phenomenon that we see quite a lot. And really, we're only starting to really understanding now that we've got all the great tools with DNA sequencing and genomics, which allow us to, to analyse the DNA and say, yes, these are all massive clonal colonies. Okay. I mean, even more complex would be something like the dandelion, which is seeding, but it's seeding asexually. So if you see a field which which is covered by dandelions, are they kind of one plant or many? 
Uh, this is a really interesting question. So it's a, a process called apomixis where, you know, a, a species that wants to colonise an area quickly, like your dandelions and, and many other plants in that family, they can produce masses of seeds really, really fast. They get wind dispersed and, and flown around a large area, quickly colonise this large area. So it's a, a really important process by which they can take advantage of of that particular um, vacant ecosystem, if you like. So, it's a, But whether there's any genetic variable variability that arises in this process, we're still working our way through that in terms of um, quite detailed genetics. Okay, this sort of cloning thing can produce some of the largest and oldest organisms on the planet. Yeah, this is where it gets really fascinating and really interesting. So there's a few examples from all around the world, and there's quite a couple of um, good examples in, in Australia. So down in Tasmania, the King's Lamatia, um, Lamatia tasmanica, is a clonal colony uh, found in the southwestern forests of Tasmania. And these are estimated by, they've done a whole bunch of work, um, they've shown that they're all genetically identical, but they're estimated to be 43,000 years old, this this clonal colony, this individual, if you like. So it's a, an individual that that's these is forty three thousand years old, and and some people actually estimated it could be as old as one hundred and thirty five thousand years, and even closer to home at, in Illawarra, the socketwood, um, it's another one that produces these clumps of um, groupings that are really quite spectacular. There's, there's a famous one in the Rocky Mountains, isn't there? Yeah, it's one of my favourites. I've had to, had the the good fortune to go to the Rockies in in autumn, in fall. If you like, where the quaking aspen forms these big clonal colonies in patchworks, and each patchwork has a different response to the the change in the temperature. And as the the winter um, conditions start to hit, they'll form different colours in these patchworks, and it really can be quite breathtaking. And there's a there's a, a group of uh, estimated of forty seven thousand odd um, trees or branches or stems, if you like, uh, in Utah that is shown to be the a single clone connected by its root system, and this. You know, is 43 hectares in size and maybe an estimated 80,000 years old um, and, and really quite um, dense and heavy. So it's probably the, amongst the world's oldest living organism, largest and the heaviest. Um, so it's, it's a spectacular example of this sorts of clonal colonies that you can see. They're, they're Sadly, un- it's, it's, yeah, they're, they're under a bit yeah. of threat because of, of climate change and, and human impact. Well, some people say they might even die out. Yes, that's 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 true because you can imagine that there's not much genetic variability, and if the temperature changes, there's very little ways in which these colonies can actually adapt or respond to to the changing climate. So it would be a hugely hugely sad thing. Yeah, well, that's the virtue of sex, though. <laughs> one of the one of the virtues of sex is it produces genetic variability. So you can't have what is happening to the Cavendish banana in in a, in a, in, a, in a in a population which is reproducing sexually. That's exactly. I mean, sex is enormously important for, for evolution to happen, adaptation to happen, and these are the critical things that we know. For have, to have resilient ecosystems, we have to have genetic, genetically variab- variability in, in enough uh, extent that it, individual plants can then adapt and um, respond to those changes in the environment or the response to invasive disease and and all of those sorts of things that are happening. Yeah, the virtues of sex. You heard it first on Self-Improvement Wednesday. (laughs) Just just finally, Brett, the Wollamai pine is an interesting case, isn't it? Yeah, the Wollamai pine is an interesting example where we have some of this clonal clumping uh, where stems come up from an individual plant, but we also have a a population of plants that are growing in in an isolated gully, very, very close to losing it this year with the fires, but we have inbreeding in this sort of in this sort of circumstances. So over tens of thousands of years, these trees have been inbreeding with one another. So there's very 
almost very little genet detectable genetic variability. And so this makes this species particularly susceptible to invasive uh, diseases and the impacts of climate change. And, and these, these species in clones are so unique, we require, they require extra special um, protection and we need to, to, to be a little bit more careful with what's happening to them. Mm, and that's why we were so desperately pleased when uh, we managed to save them during the fires. Yeah, they did an amazing and fantastic job. So it is something that we're particularly grateful for. Brett, uh, great lesson. Thank you so much. Always a pleasure. There's uh, Dr. You. Brett Summerall. Brett is the Chief Botanist at the Royal Botanic Garden here in Sydney. You can listen again online at abc.net.au slash Sydney. Find details there of how to subscribe to our free Self-Improvement Wednesday podcast. Next week, the elusive Black Panther fact or fiction. It's a bit of Sydney social history with Ben Britton, director of the Wildcat Conservation Centre. On Self-Improvement Wednesday next week.